0: Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID 19 Keeping Up with a Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC, AAPA, and AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button on the webinar console. Otherwise, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, navigate to our multi-specialty episodes, and select this webinar to claim credit. Today's learning objective is discuss the various treatment options currently available for outpatients at risk for severe COVID-19. This educational activity is supported by independent medical education grants from Gilead Sciences, as well as in-kind support from DKB Med. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Atwater, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for joining us again uh, as we uh, try to keep up. With the uh, COVID pandemic. And the Omicron variant has certainly uh, caused quite uh, a ruckus across the healthcare system in the United States uh, from December onward through the holidays. The number of cases have been substantial, the highest ever. And of course, this is likely an underestimate as the ability to get tested, while, whether by molecular means or antigen tests really proved difficult over the holidays and now into uh, January, and here we are on the 19th of January. And luckily, nationwide, uh, we may be past peak. You can see a small dip that may reflect the Martin Luther King holiday, but many states have already had fewer people in hospital for example, in New York, DC, and here in Maryland. Uh, And so this is a hopeful uh, sign that the quick uptick uh, also will have a rapid downswell, which has been true for South Africa and some other countries. However, some states which weren't quite as affected in December, for example, uh, Florida and some of the other Southern states are now uh, still on the upswing. uh, will hopefully have a, a, a higher uh, but quicker peak than some of the other peaks that you've seen here. I think the other aspect that's quite important is if you look at the sheer number of cases and compare it to hospitalizations and death, I think this does substantiate the fact that the Omicron variant is likely less virulent than earlier variants such as Delta, especially if we have more unaccounted for infections than we've had in the past. But as a variant comes along, Omicron has very quickly displaced Delta in a matter of almost a month uh, from a small percentage to now nearly 99% of isolates sequenced in the United States represent the Omicron variant. And this is important for some of the therapeutics that we'll be uh, discussing today as you're uh, thinking about patients. But uh, testing for uh, COVID has become quite a chore with the uh, onset of the Omicron variant. Uh, uh, Many uh, testing centers had closed or uh, had reduced their capacities. So many people look to the antigen tests, especially over the holidays, when it was very hard to find any kits uh, on any of the uh, pharmacy or other store shelves. Uh, The White House has announced that they are shipping uh, antigen tests now for home in a way to help mitigate some of these difficulties in finding tests if people have symptoms and want some reassurance. But uh, a couple uh, things I think are quite important. First, uh, even though we're dealing with the Omicron variant, even earlier in the pandemic, antigen testing uh, really did not perform quite as well as molecular testing. And the reason why this might be more important with the Omicron variant is perhaps the speed that this uh, variant is able to uh, uh, quickly incubate and produce uh, a productive infection. So, for example, you might swab and test Uh, someone and it's negative, but 12 hours later or the next day would be positive. And uh, this really has to do with the limits of detection. And uh, this uh, uh, preprint gives, uh, I think, an idea of why the antigen test may not be performing as well. Um, uh, And there's also some concerns that Omicron may not be uh, replicating quite as much as earlier variants in Uh, the nasopharyngeal passageways, where traditionally the swab has been considered the gold standard in that area as opposed to elsewhere. So this particular preprint compared people who were PCR positive with symptoms, and uh, what they found was that if you had a fairly significant viral load of over 100,000 copies, that uh, the antigen uh, kit uh, the Binax now kit detected either Delta or Omicron, um, but once those levels fell to 20 to 70,000 viral copies per swab, uh, that was about the best it could do. This will be uh, a, a hundredfold or more or less than uh, the limited detection for PCR. So, um, you know, PCR remains the gold standard, but many people have. Uh, Uh, been critical the tests because uh, they will check and they'll think that they're in uh, uh, in good shape with a negative test, uh, but yet uh, still have an outbreak in their household or uh, something along those lines. And I think what uh, is prudent, if it's at all possible, is that you probably you're concerned about an exposure or you have symptoms and there's a negative test initially on an antigen it uh, uh, it may be a false negative and you may want to test yourself the next day to see uh, if you can register a positive test. Now, uh, this is a rather uh, uh, busy slide, but I think it contains a lot of important information that has evolved rather quickly since December onward. Um, And it reflects a number of things Uh, first. Uh, you don't see uh, casirivimab and divimab, the Regeneron product on the slide, or bamlanivimab, etesivimab, those two monoclonal antibodies, which have been very successful in keeping people out of the hospital and with severe illness. However, the Omicron variant unfortunately uh, eludes activity of those monoclonals. The only monoclonal that's left with activity is citrovimab, which has been in quite short supply, but has been distributed still uh, by Health and Human Services. But uh, certainly here in Maryland, uh, it's a limited supply, so only the uh, patients with highest risk, like solid organ transplants or uh, people who are immunodeficient, uh, have been prioritized to receive this if they're infected. Uh, But this uh, works quite well, uh, even though the the actual uh, information that got the EUA authorization uh, was uh, an interim study. Uh, But the big news has been the top two rows, and that's the oral antivirals that have now received emergency use authorization. And Paxlovid, which is a combination protease inhibitor boosted with ritonavir, Um, has performed well with uh, over 80% reduction in uh, people who took the drug um, and avoiding hospitalization or death in the month after uh, acquiring the diagnosis. Uh, It's not fair to really uh, compare these trials one-to-one as they were all done at different times, but if you look at the number needed to treat, you get the idea that um, regardless uh, even though there's a, you know, an 88% uh, reduction uh, in hospitalization, the number needed to treat to actually uh, achieve and avoid one hospitalization is 18 people. So uh, it, it's not as though uh, everyone develops uh, severe illness and so on. And of course, these were done in people who had at least one risk factor for severe COVID-19. Now, the proteus inhibitor um, uh, certainly performed well in this study, but does have drug interactions. So some of the uh, issues with ritonavir, which is common to anyone that treats HIV patients, knows uh, that this is quite problematic, for example, in transplant patients that might be on uh, tacrolimus, serolimus, and other drugs there. So uh, what's happened is an um, authorization by the FDA for remdesivir, which we've used in hospital for a three-day course in early disease outpatient infusion, uh, which uh, had a laudable uh, decrease in um, progressive illness, as you can see, nearly equivalent to Paxlovid, um, although the the numbers and the percent impact were a bit uh, lower. Uh, Unfortunately, this is a three-day infusion, and even though Medicare has issued a J code for remdesivir, uh, the logistics of getting an infusion in the outpatient arena is certainly problematic. Therefore, coming in last is Molniprovir, an oral antiviral. Uh, this um, nucleoside analog uh, initially was touted as having a 50% reduction uh, when uh, the larger numbers of the study were uh, presented to the FDA. It turned to just a 30% reduction. However, there are no drug interactions. It appears relatively safe, uh, but you can see the number needed to treat to avoid a hospitalization or death is 34, and substantially higher, so the drug appears to be less effective. And then last, convalescent plasma uh, was, had a reauthorization by the FDA only for immunosuppressed patients. Um, a study that is uh, still in preprint, did show success in the ambulatory arena if it was infused early, um, on average six days uh, of symptoms. And uh, uh, this study, though, included all comers with risk factors, uh, but the FDA chose to limit it to people with uh, immunosuppressive illness. So that's the sort of Um, armamentarian that we have for early COVID-19 illness. Uh, There is not abundance of any of these products. So uh, unfortunately, it is a bit of a hunt to find the right uh, treatment and availability for patients, which certainly consumes time. So many patients, especially transplant patients, have held out for pre-exposure prophylaxis. You know, they don't respond well to vaccines. So the hope was that a long-lived antibody with uh, about an expectation of six months of um, uh, protection per uh, intramuscular injection, is tixagivimab-acilgavimab a combination. Uh, And this study, uh, the Provent trial was in a large number of people, and their primary endpoint was just prevention of infection. Uh, you can see the numbers here were small, uh, uh, but it did show a 77% reduction uh, there. And of course, this was all done before uh, the Omicron variant came to fore. However, it's two injections, and just given the kinetics of this monoclonal antibody, there's no protection uh, for the first two weeks. Um, and uh, this particular trial had very few immunosuppressed patients, but that's how the FDA has uh, positioned uh, this particular drug uh, to be used as a prevention for people that are immunosuppressed or don't react to the vaccine or um, have a contraindication to receiving the vaccine. Uh, The data only went up to 83 days, even though it's a six-month trial, so these are interim results, and of course, it was all done before Omicron, and the NIH has this handy chart here, where all the gold dots represent uh, in vitro studies of uh, antibodies or uh, sera of immunized people against the Omicron variant. And what you can see is that the um, uh, drug Evusheld, which is the combination monoclonal we just spoke of, um, seems to be less active against the Omicron variant. And, but uh, has more activity than you can see uh, compared to the Regeneron uh, combination monoclonal or bamlanivimab etesevimab. So the hope is it has some uh, protection. Uh, however, um, there already have been some breakthrough infections, but it's important to know that a drug's just been rolled out, and there's no ability for these long-acting monoclonals. Uh, to provide activity in the first two weeks, uh, we know from the storm chaser trial, where the this monoclonal, uh, the Evusheld, was given and really offered no protection post-exposure prophylaxis because it takes a while for the antibodies to get to tissues after intramuscular injection. So, uh, uh, Rachel, uh, lots of information there, but hopefully helpful uh, to try to help Uh, uh, make some decisions with your patients on how to proceed for either uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis or treatment. Do we have some questions this week?
0: Yes, we do. With the limited supply of the drugs for outpatients, how are patients at high risk for severe disease being treated now?
1: Well, that's a a great follow-up question uh, from what we just spoke. It depends on your situation and how um, uh, institutions and perhaps state health departments are dispensing drugs. I can give you an idea of what's happening here in Maryland. Uh, Citrobimab is being dispensed to hospitals, but also state infusion sites, and only high risk, uh, the highest risk patients, those that might have B cell deficiencies or don't mount good responses against uh, uh, immunization are being prioritized because it does seem that Citropimab is probably the best performing drug out there, but it's an intravenous infusion. Um, Paxlovid looks just as promising, but the supplies have been so limited uh, that there's only been a handful of uh, patients that have been able to get them at any given site or time. Um, For example, I've only had one patient that's been able to uh, acquire the drug before supplies are exhausted. I think molnipravir is a drug that's a bit more widely available, but because it doesn't work as well, people are angling for those earlier two treatments. And convalescent plasma uh, really had not been procured recently to a great degree. And now with this a refreshed EUA. Uh, Blood banks have to gear up to produce uh, the plasma, and it's in quite scarce supply, and it's probably being reserved mostly for uh, immunosuppressed patients in hospital. The remdesivir, again, I see being used for a three-day infusion in inpatients, not so much in outpatients just because with all the staffing shortages and difficulties of trying to arrange a three-day infusion, uh, it's been quite difficult. So hopefully all these things will improve in the uh, forthcoming weeks uh, with uh, um, hopefully increased supplies of citrovimab and especially Paxlovid uh, being planned through the spring. But one also hopes that the Omicron variant uh, or any other Uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections will decline substantially as the winter moves to spring.
0: Thank you. And here's our final question. Is throat or saliva swabbing more effective than nasal swabs for detection of Omicron?
1: There's always been interest in uh, salivary samples just because of the ease of procurement. You don't have to swab. uh, uh, and, And people generally like it quite a bit. Uh, more. And in fact, I've done, I have had both done myself, and the saliva is certainly easier. Especially with the Omicron variant, there's some suggestion that this may preferentially replicate such that salivary sampling may be um, as good uh, or perhaps even a bit better uh, compared to traditional nasopharyngeal swabs. I think Uh, Many of these looks have been quite preliminary. We'll uh, gather more information, uh, certainly over the uh, uh, next few weeks. Uh, But I I think uh, moving ahead, uh, there will be more options for uh, uh, salivary, especially uh, testing uh, on a molecular basis. I think on an antigen basis, it it may prove uh, more difficult, uh, and uh, you'll probably not see that come quite as quickly But that is another uh, potential possibility um, as well.
0: Thank you for those updates, Dr. Alwater. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit us at covid19.dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Alwater.
1: Uh, Thanks so much, Rachel, and uh, hope everyone stays well and uh, hopefully uh, can uh, do what we need uh, for our uh, patients who are uh, suffering
0: from COVID-19.